0: The movie musical. In the 1930s and 40s, it was kind of the apex of how much fun you could have in a movie theater. And in the 50s, you started to see these translations of these slightly more thought-out Rodgers and Hammerstein movie musicals. And then in the 60s, where they just kind of weren't cool. And you could argue that the movie musical never really got its mojo all the way back, although I'm not sure our two guests today, Janine Basinger and Steve Metcalf, will agree. Let's find out after the news.
1: Now, you just help us out today and find yourself a
2: place where you won't get into any trouble. Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place,
1: Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. Behind the moon beyond the rain
0: of course, is the new Taylor Swift single, and we're excited to debut it. No, it's not. Obviously, it's not. Um, so, no, we're going to be talking about movie musicals today. I don't have to tell you what musical that is or what movie that is, or we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, joining us right now is Janine Basinger, the founder of the Department of Film Studies at uh, Wesleyan University, an acclaimed program, uh, I should say, and the curator of the cinema archi- archives there, and the author of 12 books on film, most recently, the movie musical Exclamation uh, Mark, also <laughs> deserving Of an exclamation mark um, is Steve Metcalf who is our uh, go-to person on all things musical and occasional performer with us and longtime uh, writer and thinker uh, about music and occasionally of music and I think that's all the introducing I'm prepared to do right now so there's so much to talk about but Janine you know one of the things we hear in that particular clip is what a lot of people consider to be the problem of a musical and maybe even more of a movie musical which is that people are talking and then people are singing Uh, and there's a, a contingent in this world who just goes well that just doesn't happen you know that's that's unnatural that bothers me But I'm I'm wondering at the time in the 30s, 40s, maybe early 50s, was that considered a problem or did everybody just accept the convention that if you went to a movie with Fred Astaire or Judy Garland in it, they would start singing at some point?
1: It was considered a problem. It was considered a problem by the business and by everybody. The challenge was from the beginning, you have to make people accept it. People think there are zombies, they have no problem. People think you can go to space, they have no problem. People think anything except we are not going to sing to us each other today, we will not be doing that. We will not go to the restaurant and buy cheese by saying, I would like some cheese. They don't (laughs) buy it. You have to bring them into it properly. You have to set it up properly. And why that should be true is one of the vast mysteries of my personal universe, and I'm sure for us, but it it was really a challenge to the musical that wasn't just going to be a simple backstage musical, because then they understood. They go on stage and they sing and dance, and maybe they're backstage and they rehearse singing and dancing. But if you were singing about yourself, if you were telling the audience through music how you felt, if there were characterization and plot development and everything integrated into the movie through music, something had to be done right to make that happen properly.
0: Well, first of all, you've revealed that you've never seen a Metcalf at Whole Foods before because he does <laughs> yeah. buy cheese that way. But
2: um, <laughs>
1: Well, what? how does that work for you? <laughs> well,
2: that's, that's on the occasions when I can afford it.
1: I would article. also like to say that is how I met my husband. But he was singing and dancing down the street, and I chased him for six months to find him, knowing absolutely I'd found my soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> That but,
2: sounds like a movie.
1: Uh, I think so. <laughs>
0: well, Steve, just re- react anyway. I have a specific question, but react how are well, you please. Well,
2: actually, listening to that to that clip, um, you know that lovely, lovely tune, which is of course now a great icon of uh, American music. Uh, I, I hope it isn't churlish to say that Harold Arlen, who wrote the music to that <laughs> tune, um, uh, later in his life became somewhat irritated that 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 was the tune that he was most known for by far. Here was a man who wrote Stormy Weather and Come Rain or Come Shine and... That Old Black Magic? That Old Black Magic Mm -hmm. and The Man That Got Away and all these brilliant boundary pushing songs uh, was nevertheless uh, far more known for that tune than any other. And similarly, uh, you know, by all accounts, Judy uh, came to regard it as a little bit of a millstone in her career because whenever she would concertize, which of course she did... uh, of her, a lot of, later in her life, she absolutely had to do that song, or people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is, to some extent, the curse of the you know giant hit, but uh, but a, a, a lovely moment nonetheless.
0: Well, so yeah, it, go ahead.
1: Well, it, it is strange that we have that problem in the business i mean the business really saw this as a problem and they really worked to integrate or not integrate or to deal with the issue and um the history of the musical is interesting because it looks like in general nobody has a problem they're doing backstage musicals and they're doing integrated musicals but when we look back over time what we see is that to solidify the popularity of the genre, they had to figure this out, that they were doing a backstage or an integrated. And as it developed as a genre, it got more and more integrated, and they made more and more original Hollywood musicals as a result of that.
0: Well, you know, I want to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, Steve. You know, if we could begin to identify things that make a movie musical successful, uh, make it uh, successful in the sense of being good, not in terms of the box office. Necessarily, I don't know. What do you think are the keys to it? What 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 dif- you know, distinguishes one from another?
2: Well, you know, I might be a, a little different in this respect than some viewers, and Janine may may well take issue with this. But for me, uh, it all sort of begins with the individual musical numbers and and relatedly the songs themselves. I mean, for me, when I look back at some of the older. Uh, Examples of of the movie musical, let's say the let's say the Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies. I I don't think, and Janine, you'll you'll jump in here, but I don't think we necessarily look at these movies as as towering pieces of filmmaking or script writing or what have you. You know, we look at the numbers. I mean, you 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 point out "Never Gonna Dance" from Swing Time, and I, I would certainly add to that uh, "Pick Yourself Up," uh, which mm-hmm. which happens early in the movie as just being these these transcendently uh, captivating moments and and to me, that uh, even even well forward in time is is sort of the hallmark of what makes a, a, a an entertaining film musical.
1: yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. i I, I think that. Um, First of all, the the way it evolves over time is that you learn that the sooner people understand they are in a musical universe, the better. You need to establish musical performance early on so that the audience accepts this as a given and does not fight it. Uh, you need to know intervals. You have you can't have musical numbers back to back or too far apart people lose the participatory sense of a musical universe. You need to have, for heaven's sakes, people who can sing and dance. You need good music and you need um, you need the integration of the plot, you need to have numbers that are furthering characterization, furthering story to make a really good integrated musical. And even with a backstage musical where the problem of why they're doing it is not so good, or important, you have to do these things properly, establish a musical universe and and know how to transition into a number and out of a number. Transitioning from non musical to musical is one of the real challenges of filmmaking for people who love musicals and go to Broadway musicals or uh, that that doesn 't seem to be a problem. But for the average filmgoer and for the making of musicals cinematically, you really have to understand what you're doing. And for stair, it was very simple. You just started the the number under the dialogue and he went into it, but it got more complicated as time went by.
0: But, you know, I think, Steve, to your point, you know, if we think about those movies uh, of the 30s and 40s, there was kind of this sense that you were going to have I- enjoyable and talented, entertaining people who were going to sing the music uh, of Jerome Kern and Cole Porter and Richard Rogers and George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and Arlen and Harry Warren, who we'll get to, you know, and that everybody was just kind of enjoy- going to enjoy themselves. And a lot of these plots don't make any sense at all. <laughs> Nor does anybody want them to. There's just sort of a, I think it's really You know, although maybe uh, Wizard of Oz is one of the beginning exceptions, this is a movie that kind of has to hang together. The plot has to make at least a certain amount of of sense. It's really not until you get to the 50s with these translations of Rodgers and Hammerstein from stage to screen that, you know, the plot is as important anyway. There may well, be some exceptions that you can think of.
1: Well, uh, I first of all, they're beautifully integrated musicals very early on, such as Lubitsch's musicals and the wonderful "Love Me Tonight" by Ruben Mamoulian, where these things are beautifully integrated. and And uh, what what's what's significant about the historical development is it doesn't follow a step by step trajectory. It has both kinds from the beginning, but not enough people to make them. So I wouldn't say that you have to get all the way to the '50s, mm-hmm. and particularly with original musicals. Um, but I just jumped in, so well, no, I,
2: I agree with that. In fact, what I was going to say is you you frequently read, you know, in this source or that that you know, for example, Oklahoma was the first show to. To really concern itself with integrating the it's
1: songs show, it's into showboat.
2: exactly that's my point, and I, yeah. I think as great as Oklahoma is, it it certainly was in no way the first show to concern itself right. with with those things. Uh, it, it's also you know been held up as the first show that, you know that, that has a kind of recognizable musical thumbprint. And and first of all, I don't even think that's true, much less uh, being the first. And as Janine points out, Showboat in 27 mm-hmm. is already mm-hmm. doing all of those things. Right. I mean, sh- Showboat must have been an amazing moment Absolutely. for the people on opening night yeah. because there was nothing Absolutely. like that prior Absolutely. to that show. Um, but I but I think we're both saying the same thing, mm-hmm. which is that this yeah. was a very evolutionary mm-hmm. process and it didn't it just didn't proceed by step, you know, chronologically. Right.
1: right. And, and, you know, it's, it's a It's a tremendously complex history. I mean, when I started out going back to go over it, I thought, it isn't that I didn't know all this. I just didn't see it from the big picture how how really uh, our oversimplified sense of this history really is starting with showboat i mean you know a story of miscegenation alcoholism i mean it's like all the things that you say about musicals they're never serious they're never mm-hmm. they never have dark things they're never integrated it's right there 1927
0: Right. The pitch meeting must have been, you know, a little <laughs> exactly. bit, you know, a little bit. So, so, um, so Janine, I, I want to hear from both of you on this, but I think it is true that if, if you asked a hundred people who weren't terribly young, uh, to just imagine the first m- m- uh, movie musical that pops into your head. Singing in the Rain might come up more than anything. Uh, and So sort of, there's a way in which it kind of embodies what people think a movie musical, particularly a movie m- musical of kind of that golden age might be. And, and I think you in the book sort of identify it that way too.
1: Yeah, I do think so. I, I think Singing in the Rain is the musical for people who hate musicals. Also the musical for people who like musicals. <laughs> also the musical for people who love musicals it's a safe musical if i were put under the gun and said you've got to play a musical that everybody will like i would go safe with singing in the rain because it's genuinely funny it, and its humor holds up pretty well, and it does have great musical numbers, and it peps right along, and it satirizes Hollywood, which everyone always likes. And I, I do think you're right about that. Do you agree?
2: I, I do. I mean, the, the one thing I would say, I mean, I love I love that movie, and in as much as it seems to be everybody's default, you know, best movie yeah. musical of all time, I, I, I certainly don't take exception to that. I I, I think it's Kind of fair to say that it, it its ambitions are not as grand as some musicals. I mean, it doesn't very really fair. have any dark mm-hmm. themes it's, it's that it explores. It's very fair. It's very fair. Um, and,
1: and they didn't think they were making the greatest one either. Right. They thought they were doing that with an American in Paris, or maybe even the Pirate, which failed. <laughs> Kelly and Minnelli thought people were going to kiss their feet, as they said, for the pirate. They thought they had made the greatest musical ever, and it turned out only six people liked it. Yeah, right. And two of them were them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you can watch Donald O'Connor in Make Them Laugh and not not be entertained and— even even yeah. double up with laughter yourself, you, you, yeah. you're missing something yeah. important. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what are you made of? And
0: Steve, it's also a movie musical that's done something that I think not too many others have. This was a movie musical first, and now, I mean, I think Conard High School, you know, did <laughs> did, did the stage version of it. it. It's a movie musical that then acquired much, much later in its life a stage version, which not too yeah. many, not too many of them do.
2: Although it's that's been happening a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, American
0: in Paris. American in Paris,
2: which is a surprisingly yes. good uh, stage yeah. adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, Gigi started out as a movie, and then now it has a stage version, which I've never seen, but I, mm-hmm. I suppose is no, I is okay. Easy. Um, so it's a that that kind of back formation is something that I think uh, is is happening more yeah. and probably will happen more.
1: It's so interesting that originally Hollywood depended so much on stage musicals and made so many of them into movies. And then now Broadway's beginning to depend on Hollywood yeah. movies, musicals or non-musicals, to be making musicals about, which is interesting.
2: Which which reminds me, you know, and Janine and I were talking about this a few minutes ago. I, I was saying that in, in my lifetime, it seems to me that as long as I've been aware of anything, I've been hearing, oh, you know, the Hollywood musical is dead and it's dying. And there certainly, as Janine's lovely book points out, there certainly have been times— where that might have actually seemed more or less true, at least briefly, mm-hmm. um, but only briefly. Um, but interestingly, you don't really hear people say that anymore. I mean, I would say in the last few years, n- nobody is is uh, you know decrying the death of film musicals. And I, and you know, as I said, I I think we we can. Uh, Thank Lynn Manuel Miranda for a lot of that, just for creating this phenomenon yeah, that, that we, we've never seen the likes and, of.
1: You know, we can also thank, God help us, Walt Disney. Because right. Because by making, constantly making animated musicals that no one questioned because they were animals or animated creatures singing and making them for young people. He grew us a generation of, of viewers who took singing and dancing and everything for granted. Right, and, and two
2: things. First of all, some pretty good songs from exactly those shows. Exactly right. Uh, in fact, exactly Colin right. is a partisan of the Beauty and the Beast yeah, title me song. me
1: too. Me too, Colin. Me um, too.
2: But also, I think, beginning at least with Aladdin, these these uh, animated movies were as entertaining for adults as they were for children. Well, I think
0: a lot of credit. We have to uh, take a break here and uh, uh, come back. Since we're on this, though, I will say that a lot of credit goes to Alan Menken. Alan Menken is just a hell of a songwriter in a way that, let's face it, the Sherman Brothers were not. Right.
1: <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, right. Mary Amen. Poppins is
0: a very nice musical. Right. But those are not great songs. Right. But, but, you know, Mencken also has this whole oeuvre that exists outside all Absolute. the Disney stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And there's cabaret songs that are only yeah. done that way. I mean, and he's an oratorio. And that's right, an but, or...
1: but Disney growing the young people as an audience yes. primed. And also MTV. We don't want to forget that because the people grew up watching little tiny musical segments right. and so that those things did a lot to keep a, a, an audience ready to go to musicals and accept The
0: them. debt we owe to MC Hammer is just impossible to pay back. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back after this.
1: We don't talk about brew. Bruno says it looks like rain Where did he tell us? In doing so he floods my brain Abuela gets the umbrella
2: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing.
1: Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment.
0: They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal.
2: For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging.
0: Many individuals traveled to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford Healthcare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by.
2: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health.
1: Does she dance very beautifully? Who? The girl you're in love
2: with yes very
1: the girl you're engaged to the girl you're going to marry
2: oh i don't know i've danced with you i'm never going to dance again I'm left without a penny, the wolf was discreet, he left me my feet and soul. I put them down on anything but the la belle, the perfectly swell romance, never gonna dance, never gonna dance, only gonna
0: love. Again, I hope I don't have to tell you who those people are, but that is uh, Fred and Ginger, of course. Uh, that is Never Gonna Dance from Swing Time. Janine Basinger, the founder of the Department of Film Studies, the acclaimed Department of Film Studies at Wesleyan University, the curator curator of the cinema archives there, and the author of 12 books on film. Her latest, which we are here to talk about today, is the movie, movie Musical! exclamation point. And then with us, are our guru on all things musical, uh, Steve Metcalf, uh, writer and composer, and many other things as well. We should... Actually, be honest and say this, or just put our cards on the table. Steve and I, and our collaborator Larry Bloom, actually did write a musical <laughs> at one point that was performed at Ivoryton. So, but no movie, no movie offer. Strangely, well, um, well you it, guys
1: should have called me. Yeah, I, yeah. I would have fixed you up.
2: I'm writing that down,
0: yeah. Janine.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Um, this particular song and this particular m- movie Janine this is kind of your gateway drug a- yes. into the world of movie musicals yes, it, so explain that
1: well when I was a little girl I I, I come from the age when people drag their kids to the movies no matter how old you were so by the time I was three I could put my little behind down in a chair and just sit there and stick you know with it And but so I loved movies so my older sister really arranged a lot of screenings for me in places um, to see old films. And so this, for me, uh, was an old film that she had shown to me. So when I saw this movie, I, I experienced that thing that we all sometimes do in a movie where I went to another level of it. I saw as a child that pain, joy, complication what I didn't know was sex but later found out was sex and everything else could be conveyed through a musical number. In the nightclub glittered, it shimmered, it represented it had orchids, it had it had a be- it had beauty that I didn't see on the farm in South Dakota. I wasn't looking like this at all. And I saw all of these gorgeous things. She was beautiful, he was beautiful, but I understood that Plot, characterization, pain, joy could all be contained in a musical number. And I had already understood as a child that movies were going to usually come to a point where things had gone wrong and you had to wait and get sorted out. And as a little girl, I really hated that. I used to complain bitterly. Now I have to sit here while they sort this out. (laughs) I hated that. And suddenly I saw, but wait, they did it. They did it with shimmering lights and beautiful movements and this sort of hidden but yet explicit and it could contain. I just got it somewhere in my guts, you know, that this was good. And I fell in love with Fred and Ginger. I fell in love with that movie and I fell in love with musicals. And luckily, I had come along at a point in life when most of the films were going to be good musicals, or even musical musicals, let's put it that way. So this was a real turning point for me. It was a movie marker for me.
0: So can we just make talk a, little, a moment about that the man that we're hearing there too you know I mean Astaire to me is the perfect summary of what that era was all about and and people think of him as a dancer although I've always believed and I've had other people who would know better than I would tell me the same thing that he could really get a song across there's a way in which this guy he's a really great vehicle to transmit a Berlin tune or a Gershwin tune
2: yeah. well actually Berlin himself exactly. i think more than once uh, is on record saying that that he thought fred was yeah. the premier interpreter of his right. songs and yeah. perhaps you know m- m- all of those songs which i think is is self evident if you spend a few minutes with him. i mean he he was a yeah. master fraser and he just had that kind of elegant legato style and and yeah. the, when I, you when you think of voices of absolutely. that era
1: Fred there Astaire. aren't men no. who
2: can match that.
1: And he's talking to us and communicating. And, you know, Fred Astaire was a very good drummer. He uh, he could play the piano. He um, he was very musical to his core. He also composed music himself, and some of his things weren't too bad.
2: He had one sort of hit, didn't he? Yeah, was it wasn't something. A bu- building up to an yeah, awful letdown. Building
1: up to an awful letdown. See, if you can <laughs> sing it, hum it now. I have no clue on that <laughs> one. I can't help you. But he... Um, Berlin did say I'd rather have you know, I'd rather have him introduce a song than anybody because he could put it over. But he walks even the way, as I, I say in my book, the way that some great drummers walk, as if he's responsible for the rhythm of life. And that's how he sings the songs. He's he's amazing. He's just amazing. That to me, he's perfection. So, uh,
0: before we leave this era, uh, Steve, we should just say a little. You said at the beginning, I asked you, you know, m- what really defines or what makes a great musical movie great, and you said it really starts with the songs and the songwriting. So, this is an era where a lot of these songs are also the hit songs that everybody is singing outside of movies and outside of Broadway shows, and there is just this panoply of these amazing songwriters. One of the ones that that Janine uh, highlights in the book, and a guy who wrote, I think, much more for Hollywood than for Broadway is Harry Warren, otherwise known as Salvatore Antonio Guarana. I have to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Warren's you. actual you're name. Just, but you're just yeah. showing off. <laughs> no, that just I can get to Wikipedia pretty fast. Uh, I
1: appreciated that.
0: So, um, I don't know, maybe you can just say. a little little bit more about the the, the music itself, the songwriting by by the big five, you know, Gershwin, Kern, Berlin, Porter, and Rogers.
2: Well, uh, as you well know, Colin, I mean, so the big five are the ones that are routinely invoked in these conversations, and they should be because really between them or among them, they, they own such a huge percentage of what has now become the American songbook, especially, by the way, Dick Rogers, who I think I mean, not to take anything away from the others, but I mean, when you just consider the sheer volume of immortal songs that any individual poured out in his lifetime, I I think Richard Rodgers is clearly at the top of that uh, mountain. And then there's, you know, then there's a kind of a, I don't know, a kind of second tier that those of us who pay attention to this stuff would invoke. And that would include Harold Arlen, who wrote, over the rainbow and hogie carmichael and maybe frank lesser and a few others but but harry warren is interesting because um you know he he really is like in a way the the most successful songwriter that nobody ever heard of mm-hmm. and and uh uh again janine you may have something to say about this it it feels to me because harry like some other uh composers worked more much more in hollywood than than on Broadway, it feels to me like like Hollywood was not very kind to its composers. They they were sort of assembly line, piece workers, and mm-hmm. they went out and they they fulfilled their contract and they supplied eight tunes or whatever they were contracted to do. And then you know, thank you very much, and we never heard of of them after that. So whereas there was a certain romance to being a Broadway composer, and still is. You know whether you were Gershwin or Porter or whatever it is, it it, it feels to me like Hollywood composers, like Warren, uh, just n- never got the attention as individuals and as and as creative mm-hmm. artists that that uh, was their due.
1: I, I agree. I, I I would have loved to write on all of the greats, but others have done it and could do it better than I. But I selected to the, to write more about Harry Warren because he does represent exactly what you just correctly described, the journeyman Hollywood composer. He did do other things, but this is the man who took an assignment. You need to write a hit song that we can sell uh, sheet music and records for Alice Faye, it's going to be a period movie, so it's got to sound like it came from that period. But we want to sell it today, so it's got to be modern. Here's her range. You can't get out of it. Uh, here's what she can handle. And here's what the scene is about. you got to fit it. So he writes You'll Never Know. One of the greatest, of the greatest. tunes exactly. of all But that's his assignment. It's an assignment. And it's not that a Broadway composer wouldn't be having a similar kind of assignment but it's like we need it Thursday and it's got to work for her nobody else we don't care if anyone ever you know it, it was a it was a job he dr- got up in the morning he drove to work he composed and then he went home i mean it was um now you're gonna write for Carmen Miranda. She She's very fussy, she knows her own music, she has her own banda de lua, they they won't play any rhythms other than Portuguese, Brazilian, you gotta get in that. <laughs> you know, he had to, this is how he was working. It was a different kind of thing. They, they, he, not the glamour figure, he was the workaday world composer who delivered who delivered to fit a character, to fit a star or a star's range, to fit a plot, to fit a traveling song, to to do what was needed, get it done fast, and put it on. And that's different from Gershwin, mm-hmm, and right. that's just—you're you, yeah. absolutely well, right.
2: I, as I was coming down at a stoplight, I, I actually— off the top of my head because I'm not sure everybody listening to this will particularly know Harry Warren's name or mm-hmm. what what he did besides you'll never know. So I jotted down At Last, which is, of course, the song Love that, that. that Ed James, James has made yeah. into a have-to-sing-it-at-every-wedding mm-hmm. song. From
1: from uh, um, Orchestra-Wives and Sun Valley Serenade. Ah,
2: well, mm-hmm. there you go. I didn't jot that down. Yeah. But
1: Those two
2: Lullaby of Broadway, 42nd mm-hmm. Street, um, only I Only Have Eyes for You, I would like to point out that he's
0: the greatest writer of all time of songs with titles featuring American cities that have double O's in them. Because yeah. he got Chattanooga Choo Choo and I got a gallon Kalamazoo. 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 I'll That's stack right. those up against anybody <laughs> else's. Well, I think the cop who pulled you over mentioned that to you I think too. He, he said, did. "Steve, I think you left I Got he a Gallon did. Kalamazoo' off that one," and, and he let gr- me off. Yeah.
1: You know what's great about it? See, he understood cutting rhythm. He understood mm. how to write for a movie number that was going to get cut. He understood rhythm has got to come into this, and he can't have a rhythm that is. He had to see some rough cuts and get a sense. And he was a true Hollywood composer. I mean, I guarantee you, Gershwin or or Berlin weren't thinking about cutting. Oh, yeah. and so he was. I, I don't
0: want I, if we talk too much about Harry Warren, oh, yeah, we're going to okay. like miss everything. Move right so on. actually, we're going to have to <laughs> speed a little bit. And we talked a, a, a little bit about how in the the fifties, uh, a lot of those um, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, most m- most of which. I think we're on stage in the 40s. They got onto the screen in the 50s. Uh, But then this other thing happens, Uh, this uh, other musical that in many respects shifts the entire um, nature of the Broadway musical and probably the movie musical, too. I'm talking about West Side Story. Uh, Let's hear a little bit from Quintet. are gonna have their way tonight the puerto ricans grumble fair
1: fight but if they start a rumble we'll rumble them right we're gonna hand them a surprise tonight we're gonna cut
2: them down to size tonight we said okay no rumpus, no tricks but just in case they jump us we're ready to win so, Steve, why don't you get us started on this? Well, first of all, Bernstein was a little irritated because that's the movie version, and he thought they took that tune too fast. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they made it better. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we we have a whole second show here, but well, West Side Story obviously is one of the landmarks, as as Janine writes in the book, one of the landmark five, I think that she identifies certainly in the in the history of the genre to me one of the interesting things about west side story you know we have this movie that spielberg has done he has dared to make a second movie version of west side story
1: boy boy crazy boy get cool boy got a rocket in your pocket Keep coolly cool boy, don't get hot, cause man you've got some high times ahead. Take it slow and daddy-o, you
0: can live it up and die in bed. Boy, boy, crazy boy, stay loose boy, breeze it, buzz it, easy does it. Turn off the juice boy go man go but not like a yo-yo school boy just play a cool boy
2: Real cool. but you know let's be honest the first one is 60 years old and maybe it's time for another one so to me these these are telltale Emblems of the fact that this really is a landmark piece of American culture, as if as if anybody needed me to say that. <laughs> but it's it is to get back to the point that I raised a few minutes ago. You know, it is the music and the numbers and and the dancing that make this show. It's not, uh, I I would argue, it's not a particularly inspired book, but because the music is uh, is literally timeless in the way that any any classical music is this show obviously i think will dance its way into the hearts of every generation from here to whenever so uh, you know it, it's just it's just one of those few shows that that is kind of eternal.
0: Jeanne, I want to ask you one question about Mm -hmm. that, because this is a a nice place to ask about a question that's sort of about form and medium. Mm -hmm. So some of the thrill of going to see a Broadway show is seeing people realize live uh, a difficult musical or dance number. You know, there's something thrilling about that. I, I actually saw on Broadway The Prom. It's not the greatest musical in the world or anything like that. But, you know, when they do things, there's something incredibly exciting about the fact that you're there live seeing it, something could go wrong, Whatever and, and movies are different, and movies this movie is different enough so that N- Natalie Wood, who would not obviously have been able to participate uh, in a stage production of this right. is is Maria.
1: Well, here you have it. I mean, broad theater and cinema are not the same thing. Hello, everybody out there, in case you never thought of that. This is my insight. But uh, so, you know, one, they're different experiences, and the people who are making musicals have to really be aware of that. And when you take a great, successful Broadway show and you make it into a musical, you can't just photograph the thing that was great, because you lose what it had that so much of what made it great, which was the electricity of the live performance, the excitement, the movement in front of you. film is a different kind of experience. And so this is a conversation that, you know, I would have to give you a, you know, a a full course lecture on. But um, they, the thing is, Natalie Wood represented a beautiful person and they thought that would be fine because they were going to have the music anyway and they were going to bring you in close, which is what they can do, and they were going to do it all differently. One of the interesting things about this remake concept is that film historians will tell you, will give you statistics or pseudo-statistics or some kind of statistics that say very clearly that there is strong evidence to indicate that whatever version of a musical or any Novel or anything, film you see first is the one you love. And I said, does this mean that if I spent my life showing Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand <laughs> in A Star Is Born, I would make that into the world's <laughs> greatest musical? Because this is not good news. No, not
0: indeed. Actually, and that gives us a good way to go to a break right here. We got one segment coming up. I want to talk a little bit about the present and immediate immediate past of movie musicals. So let's, since you mentioned her, let's go out with a little bit. A stray sound
1: One ticket on the Empire Limited departing from New York at 8 30 a.m. Now boarding a Track 14. But Fanny, what's the matter with you? haven't you any prize. Not I love the guy you loves me. I want to be with him. It's that
2: simple. Fanny, can't you see you making a fool of yourself? George, when something's right for me, I do it, and this is right for me. Have you asked yourself if it's right for Nick? I'll make it right for him. Fanny, don't think your oh, neck no, out Fanny,
1: of Fanny, Fanny, way. Are you not do, 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 do it. do it. You don't 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 do it. Do it. You don't Don't tell me.
0: Don't tell me not to live, just sit and up.
1: When we think of slavery in the US, we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Atheneum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Where are you from? Arizona. Arizona boy?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Dad had like a midlife crisis, I think. So I've been told. Made his way to Arizona started working for uh, his family on a pecan ranch.
1: A pecan
0: ranch? Yeah. Knocked up the family's daughter. She was just shy of 18. Uh (laughs)
1: Uh-oh.
0: That's when I came into the picture, okay,
1: the yeah. son of an eighteen
0: year old oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, she died at childbirth, and my dad I'm um, sorry. he uh he died when I was thirteen, so I guess my brother would tell you that he raised me, but uh, I don't know who was raising who just hundred and twenty seven acres of nuts Navajo and nowhere to go. Tell me something, boy
1: Aren't you tired Trying to fill that void Or do you need more Ain't it hard keeping It's so hard hardcore
0: Than me? All right. You know what that is. Uh, Okay. So it's A Star is Born, (laughs) the latest remake of A Star is Born. So uh, I'm here with Jeanine Basinger and Steve Metcalf. Time is short. Um, So I want to give you my theory that you can then, in an entertaining way, tear apart. Um, So I sort of think that one of the problems that movie musicals faced at a certain point, kind of getting out of the era that we just left and coming into the the era that we were just starting to talk about is – so in the 50s, you have – Rock and roll is starting to become important, but you also have these, as we said, Rodgers and Hammerstein movies, which were, you know, really, really entertaining and really good too, and and very listenable, and you could imprint on them. As you get into the '60s, in '61, I think you have West Side Story, which is just, you know, undeniably just cool. It just is cool. Uh, and but you know, the like Sound of Music is the last one of the last ones there. I think that bleeds into the '60s, and then you have some Streisand movies, and you have Mary Pop, happens and you have rock getting really more and more important and i think one of the problems was that musicals weren't they were kind of counter cool uh, in the 60s as the baby boom generation started looking for its own music and building its own taste there was a way in which there weren't musicals that corresponded very closely to this all right tear it apart
1: well, one of the things that happened for musicals it was they they became not cool. They they weren't they were too square. Doctor Doolittle, I don't think so, and uh, they became you know uh, clinging to a portrait of, of, of a more happy ending or whatever. And we moved into say the Vietnam era. Movies became dark. uh, America turned on itself and its genres were turned inverted. It was easy to invert a Western to accommodate attitudes toward Vietnam. You just increased the violence and all that. But what does a musical do? It it became more difficult. Musicals had to contend with the collapse of the studio system, which is one of the most important things because the money to make them wasn't there the personnel to do them were no longer under contract. So to assemble and make one was outrageously expensive, and they couldn't make the money back. And they were going against the times. They were going against the times musically, intellectually, emotionally, politically. And I think that's a part of it. What what would you say? Yeah, I
2: agree with that. I mean, I I think in the broader (laughs) cultural sense, it took you know the 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 large ocean liner that constituted the Broadway musical took a long time to kind of turn in the direction of uh, pop and rock music, which was increasingly becoming the language of American popular music. And so, for a long time, I think there there was a kind of a, a gap in uh, in younger. Composers. I mean, you could argue, of course, as I as I think you do, Janine, that Hard Day's Night and Help were, in fact, mm. movie musicals of, of a sort. Right. They, they weren't maybe classic constructions, but um, and Elvis, you had
1: Elvis, and,
2: and, and Elvis. Although, in a way, Elvis was a had kind of one foot in both worlds he did. because he did. most of the people creating mm-hmm. at that point those those Hal Wallace m- movies were were not Elvis's generation, and God knows they weren't. Uh, you know, the the young consumers of rock and roll, they were, a lot of those guys were older Tin Pan Alley people.
1: You had the new Hollywood coming. You had Marty. You had these people coming out from New York, from television, everything shifting to a more independent mode, a lower budget. New voices were coming in, but they weren't a lot of musical voices that were working, particularly at that time. And the public was feeling... Uh, not so interested in them. When I went through everything historically, I was surprised to see how many musicals were actually being made <laughs> during this time, but nobody went to them or nobody I was going to say, they them.
2: didn't do very well. That's
1: right, they did not. And the big ones didn't, like Star with Julie Andrews, or the little ones didn't. I mean, even things like Phantom of Paradise or interesting things that came along later just didn't get the attention.
2: And, and the movies, I mean, the the shows that reflected what was happening in American music, like Chorus Line, which, of course, was a smash right. on Broadway, somehow produced one of the worst right. Hollywood movie musicals, as I think you agree, I do. ever made. I, do. I mean, just, just a, an unspeakable turkey, which I think set the cause back right, a little yeah. bit. I think also, you know, one thing
0: that Steve and I were talking about getting ready for this was that you also had almost that. The problem that we started the show out with, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so we'll have to do a whole other second show, but um, that the so-called problem of people talking and then singing, one of the ways people saw that with in recent years in particular is to have people who can't sing be in movies. So you've got Johnny Depp and Helena and Bonham Carter doing Sweeney Todd. I mean, they can't sing. It
2: doesn't make any sense.
1: Absolutely right. Why do we go to musicals for w- with people who can't sing and dance? The it's answers. almost it's
2: almost as if being able to have musical training and vocal training right. is unhip. Mm-hmm. It's square. Yeah, right. And yeah. I, I I hate to say it, but I would level the same charge at La La Land.
1: So would I. And so Moulin I.
2: Rouge, So
1: for would that I. Matter. So
2: would I. We're bonding here.
0: We need to do act two here. La La Land also has <laughs> kind of a song rating problem, too. Yeah, right. Right. Nobody's sitting and gathering around the piano to sing those songs. I spent
1: the whole film wondering, is that elephant thing is that how big is that I mean I was like totally I mean I paid no attention to the Mm. musical performance so
0: Janine i got literally 60 seconds left but there was a question I wanted to one thing I would like to talk about some other day is what would have happened if Michael Jackson had kept his stuff together and like really inherited you know uh, what Astaire could do and and kind of you know
1: fantastic yeah fantastic we would have had something fantastic even the little bit we see of him in the whiz this man he could dance he he had power He had energy. He he was distinctive. This is the greatest loss of that era as a musical performer, that we didn't have him. And by the way, that represents generations going backwards Mm -hmm. of fabulous African-American performers that we could have had more of. But Michael Jackson was a star, yeah. a Amen. star. And that's Amen. kind
0: of the, you know, I mean, Steve, that is kind of the thing that, another thing that we miss. And you got a guy like Hugh Jackman who really can do this stuff. But but I don't know. He's he's known more as Wolverine, I think, probably, than as a guy who does musicals.
1: Yeah, I would say if you were choosing him for Wolverine or Barnum, they, people would know him as Wolverine. and But he, he is a, you know, it's it's a ponder. It is another show. We yeah. have to come up with this answer, and I'm About sure tomorrow. We can. All right,
0: okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we're going to stop there. Other than to say that, uh, first of all, so grateful. Terrific. I just
2: I just want to say this this book of Janine's is a fabulous. Book, it's a lot of fun, and, and it's a tremendously okay. entertaining book, and yeah. you need to read it.
0: So that book is the movie musical exclamation point uh, with Janine Basinger as the author and Steve Metcalf exclamation point uh, always here for <laughs> uh, anything that requires an exc- exclamation point, especially music. Things though. Thanks very much. Thanks to Jonathan McPants for producing this show and Kat Pastor for uh, doing such a great job on the board. Let's go out with uh, Singing in the Rain, which is, you know, in many ways the musical everybody's just gotta
1: love. You bet. Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the
2: rain, I have a smile on my face.
1: I want down the lane with a happy refrain just singing singing in the rain